Yeah, well, I'm sorry about that, too, Ma. He won't do it again, I promise you. What are you gonna do about it? What, the crap or the Oreos? About Clyde? God damn it, I don't have no privacy in my own home no more. Well, I confronted him about it, Ma, and I, I guarantee it won't happen again. No privacy in your own home? A whole goddamn bag of Oreos. Stop that, you goddamn baboon. No respect, no privacy, no nothing. Hello, listening people. Hello. Well, hello, Bartek. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. I was trying to go for a who, but I didn't quite get to you. You got well, you went somewhere else. Yeah. I don't know where you went. I didn't make a good enough <laughs> sound at the beginning. Oh, I'm so sorry about Th- that. Then it would have been a who. Thank you, and that is the podcast. Where Clint where Eastwood's we... a friend with an owl. <laughs> <laughs> what would you call that movie? Every which way, but but what? What's know, that one? Know who your friends are. Oh, there you go. <laughs> know who, who your friends are. That's a sequel. We are Spit and Polish, and we are presenting to you our show, Pictures Power, where we talk about a movie that has come recommended. You can recommend a movie to us. We recommend movies to each other and to you. And there is a cycle of recommendation. And this particular episode, we are going through a movie that was given as a recommendation very early on. This is one of the first recommendations we got. And we've just been pushing it back and pushing it back. And now it's time to talk about the Clint Eastwood movie where he has a best friend. And that best friend is an ape. Not just any ape, not a baboon. This one has 12 ribs. His name's Clyde, and he's an orangutan. And boy, oh boy, what a film to really come into, huh? Well, well Ryan, they're on the edge of their seat. What's, what's it called? What's it, what is it from? Every Which Way But Loose. A, a title that rolls off the tongue. Thankfully, it has a song, even. <laughs> I told my parents that we were going to watch this, and my mum started singing the song at me, and I said, Mum, 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 stop. Don't spoil it for me. I want to experience it all on my own. So I got spoiled by knowing that there was a catchy song about this movie. Uh, what year was this from? It was like 1978. I was going to say 78 or 77. 70, it was late 70s, and you can definitely see the 1970s on the screen, as well as within the atmosphere of this. This has a very 1970s feel as a movie where uh, the way I would best describe it is lethargic. The 1970s, a lot of films had a very lethargic pacing to them and overall atmosphere, uh, a slice-of-life attitude with a level of despondency. Think about Taxi Driver, for instance, where that also has that, where it's like, you have a thrusting plot that you're working towards, but it just wanders about from scene to scene. Same with uh, Rocky, the first Rocky movie, where it's like, that's a slice of life movie. Yeah, you have like the beat of a story, but a lot of that movie is just kind of walking around from scene to scene, and eventually we'll get to where we're going. I was going to bring up examples of 70s films, but I couldn't think of any good ones, and you said these two you know, prolific ones. I'm like... I can only think of Mr. Scarface. <laughs> Mr. Scarface. <laughs> and Enter the Dragon. And Enter the Dragon. Again, both are, they take their time, they wander around from place to place, and Mr. then eventually they get to where they need to go. <laughs> uh, if people, if you have not seen Every Which Way But Loose, 
you're really missing out because we're going to talk about it now in depth and you should you should look at this for yourself it's you're going to hear it be described but seeing it is another thing entirely History and relationship-wise with this, I knew about its reputation and the pitch of this. This is uh, apparently his mo- Clint Eastwood's most successful film financially. Oh, yeah, the trivia was like, oh, this was like the first film to break $10 million in the opening weekend or something like that? And so it did very well for itself. I remember when I was looking up on Wikipedia, like, you know, on the side at the top, has like the box with information at the bottom, has like the budget and the box office. I misread it where the box office said like hundred something million to like think, oh, hundred something K. And I'm like, oh wow, five million budget, hundred K return. Hmm. That's like huge flop. Then I looked at it again after watching the movie, I'm like, oh no, that's 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 a huge profit. <laughs> yeah, and even to this day, it's his one of his most successful films. This was also him going away from the tough man persona purely and leaning into comedy for the first time, really. Even though his Spaghetti Westerns, they have a lot of humour in there, this is a different beast entirely when it comes to that. But I knew of Clint Eastwood in a boring movie with an orangutan, and that was it. This has been ridiculed and mocked since it came out. Roger Ebert talked about the second film. There's a second one. Yeah, I saw a quote from that. And he had a quote saying that it's not a good film, but you can't help but like it. He's just like, it's aggravating that you feel affection for it. That's how he just, he had this whole sentiment of, and I I totally know what he means. There's so many movies. I think I know exactly what he means, actually. There's so many films where I go, I don't like it, but God damn it. I felt a fondness for it when I watched it, like, but I would never say it's a good movie. Yeah, but- like, y- y- I know that every episode you ask, like, so what did you think? And I walked into this one thinking, like, I think I'm legitimately going to say I don't know. Ah, well, Roger Ebert <laughs> has an answer for you. Yeah. But I know, know South Park made fun of it a bunch, and that's really it. And I was dreading walking into it because I saw the runtime was nearly two hours. I and saw, I saw that it too. and I said, please no. I said, like, uh, yeah, I remember you told me the premise. This is my history. You told me the premise last week. Oh, it's the Clint Eastwood comedy where he's, you know, buddied up with an orangutan. Um, and it's notorious. I'm like, okay, well, it's a comedy. So it's got to be like 90 minutes, maybe just under. And I saw like 10 minutes shy of two hours. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe it's got ideas. <laughs> Boy, were you wrong. I did say at the end of the last episode that my biggest fear about it is it's almost two hours long and you let out a big belly laugh about oh, that f- idea entirely. Clearly, clearly, it's been a long week, I forgot. It's been a long week. So, do you have any other relationship with the movie? Did you know anything more? Even after having watched it, were there things that just flooded to the brain when it comes to this that maybe has been referenced in I pop culture or in your life? Well, I didn't know too much about it, so I don't know about references, but the title, I feel like I've heard it floating around here and there. So I figured, oh, well, this is a well-known film of some sort that's just you know flown under my radar, ignoring the fact that you know it's, you know, a decade and a half older than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. So, what did you think, Mr. Bartek? Well, at first, Ryan, I didn't know. Um, I, I'm not too... I don't love the film, but I do feel a certain fondness for it. I feel like if I were to ever go to someone's house and they'd say, 
dude, I really want to watch my favorite film uh, every which way but loose, I would humor them and say, yeah, let's put it on. <laughs> it's it's It was a very confusing film. <laughs> Early on, uh, I was trying to work out when the story was going to start, <laughs> what the story was. Um, when you gave me the premise last week, the immediate thing that came to mind was, okay, maybe it's like a Turner and Hooch kind of thing where you see the meeting of the characters <laughs> and they have to learn to get along. <laughs> you know, you know, this is the type of buddy type of film that we usually have where, you know, we talk, we even mentioned like 48 hours a few weeks ago. It's like, yeah, oh yeah, to an odd couple kind of thing going on. Um, and so I thought, okay, yeah, that's going to be the thing. But then no, Clyde is introduced to us, like beating him in the dark, which was also a very confusing sequence. And then, you know, you had that great shot of giving him the peanut and it's like, oh, the peanut clearly shows us that they, these guys already know each other. So I, up in the air, what is this film going to be about? (laughs) (laughs) So, wow. What a movie. I hated it until <laughs> until I loved it. There was a specific moment where it became love, and I and I don't I don't think you'll be surprised to hear what it was. Do you have a guess of the turning point for Ryan Slowinski when it came to the relationship between him and a movie about Clyde the orangutan and Clint Eastwood hanging out? Was it the zoo scene? No, it was Ruth Gordon. Being confronted by a oh, gang of bikers. That was a great scene. <laughs> that was not only a great scene, but the best scene. I it had a fell lot of out of my chair <laughs> laughing at just, even before she grabbed out a gun, just the entire scene itself I was enraptured by because she's such a great character and that actress, Ruth Gordon, she has a very specific, she had a very specific way of saying the mannerisms and just acting and I just couldn't wait to see her be up against these freaks. And mm. it was everything I wanted and more. But no, I hated the film uh, for for most of it. It was slow. It's plotting. It's a musical without being a musical. <laughs> <laughs> I also was surprised that, that Clyde took a while to come into the film. And I had a sneaking suspicion that he was already friends with an ape because he grabbed those peanuts at the bar early on. Yeah. And I said, oh, he's grabbing peanuts for his ape. See, that could have been a setup for like, oh, we're not so different. You and I, we both like peanuts. Yes. <laughs> creep. Yeah. yeah, creep. <laughs> and I was waiting for the ape and then he comes in and they really do play it for... of the movie that it's completely normal that he has an ape and nobody questions the ape and everyone is on board with the ape. When we see Clint Eastwood get into a fist fight for the first ever time, it's this massive crowd shot and he's walking with with the orangutan and everyone's just not reacting to the fact that there's a big (laughs) orangutan next to them. As they're watching people duke it out. And I thought that was funny. And I had actually a hard time because I didn't know if this was going to be a comedy or not. I really didn't know too much other than the premise and how stupid it sounded. And we've seen companion movies like this be played sincerely. And I thought, oh, this is going to be like a gritty movie where for some reason... Dirty Harry himself, Clint Eastwood, is teamed up with with an ape. I thought he was going to be a cop who, for some reason, is now stuck with an ape and he must return the ape. But no, 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 no. It is a comedy. And it's even funny in the first half, but it was just, it has that 70s filmmaking style where 
they just don't really care about plot. They don't really care about character logic or anything of that. They, they, they'll get there eventually. You, you can't discredit the film and say they don't do those things, but it's they do them eventually. I feel like if this film came out like you know, a decade and a half longer, I'm leading to a comparison to Big Lebowski here. I feel like this would also be a candidate for something that would create like the dudism religion. Oh, of course. And let's not forget that The Big Lebowski was a flop and a failure and hated when it first came out. It became a cult classic through its release on video. This, on the other hand, was successful. This made a lot of money. This generated a sequel. Yeah, reviews weren't great, but the money was was there. <laughs> People, lo- and I, I thought you were going to say, if they made this today, we wouldn't have like they would never make this movie today. Could you imagine <laughs> them making a movie like this today? Unironically, because that's the thing that's really great about Every Which Way But Loose is, although it's a comedy, there's no sense of snarky cynicism and winking at the audience. They play it sincerely that his best friend is an ape and everyone loves the ape. And it just, you, you could remove the ape from this movie and you'll have just a, a, a run of the mill story about a guy chasing after a girl and then slowly over the course of the adventure learning that he doesn't actually love the girl, or the girl doesn't actually love him. But then there's the gimmick of, but there's also an ape. <laughs> and as a viewer who has media literacy, I'm waiting for the ape to contribute to the plot. <laughs> and well, he never does. Well, no, he did. Remember, they, they, he, and he needed to have sex, so the, the brother and his girlfriend had to wake up and go with them. It interrupted their good sleep. There you go. And that's why <laughs> Ape needed to be here in this feature film. That was a really funny scene. Because he woke them up and they didn't know what was going on and I didn't know what was going on. No. No. No, 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 the, not at all. The lead up to that was this like long montage of him and the orangutan hanging out. And like they clearly had something going on in their heads that they were understanding. But we as the audience were like, what, what's going on here? And then... You have like a whole minute of him being like, we have to go, this isn't right, this isn't right. So <laughs> it's to get laid. <laughs> walk us through your journey, your headspace, your experiences <laughs> and overall feelings having watched this movie. Um I remember early on there's a scene at a bar, it's where he gets the peanuts and he punch he he has he gets into a fight with a guy who I guess really didn't like the fact that he took a peanut. Well, it's because he also invaded his personal space while he was being Mr. Dominant, this is my bar, fuck you, to another patron. And so Clint Eastwood literally stepped between the two to grab some peanuts as just a what they call an alpha move. Mm. Yeah, it's a power move. It's a power move. Uh, um, And I remember during the fight where they were exchanging power moves, there was a point where he punched him into like the jukebox. And then there was a cut that was like... Of the same shot, but, like, at a slightly different angle, and the guy's, like, posture was different from the previous shot, so it was really jarring. And I had this feeling of uncertainty of, like, ooh, is this this the sort of editing that I'm going to be seeing for the film? Um, And thankfully, it wasn't too much like that going forward. I think there might have been one point where, uh, like, a punch sound effect didn't match, like, the intensity of the punch. 
Um, they reused the same punch sound effect a few times. Yeah, too. it was very obvious in some of the organized fights. Um, but a lot of the times when Clint Eastwood would get uh, into a fight with someone at like a restaurant or a bar, it really reminded me of like the you know all, all the crime sandbox games where it's like you're the tough guy and like people just keep picking fights with you because it's like there's there's something about the main character that's pissing me off <laughs> and I'm gonna punch him up and then they get their asses handed to them. He, our main character was basically Kiryu from the Yakuza franchise in a lot of the scenes in this movie. And so I got some amusement out of that, this sort of absurdity in the realm of these fictional video games existing in a movie. Just seeing that play out was kind of amusing to me. Just to touch that point for a second, isn't that what happens to Clint Eastwood in his westerns? He's a character that wander into town and people will react as strongly. Oh, it's a big thing in all westerns, I'm sure. But I'm just using him as the example. Yeah. But you see, when you transplant that same thing to then-current day, it has an inherent absurdity. But when you're in a specific time period, a genre, you as a viewer accept things far easier. And even now, you're talking about it from, like, your video game perspective of, like, in a video game that's kind of a given because you need combat to happen in Mm. terms of, like, here's how the game works and also you're playing it, so have fun. But when you actually have, like, a live-action movie from 1978 and it's Clint Eastwood... It's it's very silly. It's very funny that he's now getting into a fist fight because he grabs some peanuts. But if this was him in his sombrero with the big hat with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth, then it's like, when's the person going to pick a fight with him? Yeah, yeah, and how's he going to end them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like like you said, the premise eventually becomes that he fell in love with a woman that he met a few times, and then she suddenly vanishes, and then you get this kind of road trippy kind of movie. Um, with also an element of like um, <clears throat> uh, Blues Brothers and the Bubble Boy, where it's like certain factions that he's wronged are chasing <laughs> after him, but he doesn't even know it, and he doesn't even know it, or and when or when he does find out, it's really not that big a deal because he can just you know take him on no problem because he's Kiryu, um, and yeah, and, and like I said, I was waiting for the plot to begin and. I think there was a point where I had to pause the film to go to the toilet or get a drink or something, and I was like, just before the halfway point, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this hasn't even begun yet. <laughs> but little did you know, it had. That's it the had. story. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was, in a weird way, it's like waiting for something to happen and also waiting to see what happens next, because you do cut back to the bikers a few times, and they're like ridiculed in... Pretty much every single scene. Like, because they're losers. Like, the best scene they come out of is when the leader just gets some water on his shoes. From the trailer park owner. And every single time their scene began, there was, like, a broken saxophone sound playing over them. And, yeah, the, the Ruth Gordon scene with them was very great because she'd been established in the film before with uh, in the context of how she is with her sons you know complaining mm. she wants to get a license she's now being you know left alone without them she feels persecuted for being old is the thing that she she's always talking about i'm just an old lady and they won't give me my license per- and now my yeah. children are leaving me alone now the police are at my door asking me questions leave me the fuck alone yeah yeah for persecuted being like sort of angry victim type character 
Um, and this is the character we understand. And now you've got these guys like messing around her front lawn. She doesn't know what, why they're doing it. She just wants them to go away. And then once they cause damage, she just pulls out the shotgun. And even while she is absolutely demolishing them and making them shit their pants, she's still putting up the act of like harassing a poor old lady. (laughs) (laughs) She runs out of ammo and has to go back inside to get more. And she's talking about that. How could they? I'm just defenseless. That film, that that film, that scene was so great that whoever created the film, if you're listening, you did yourself a disservice following that up with them, you know, talking to the guy in the trailer park where nothing much really happened because, you know, way to talk about going No, 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 no. I I disagree. Oh, yeah? I 100% disagree because that gave one of the best jokes in the movie in the trailer park scene, which is one of the dumbasses, the one with the comb over, Mm. wants to pick a fight with this old guy. And then the head Nazi guy, the head of the gang says, whoa, 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 don't underestimate him. We <laughs> underestimated that previous old person and look what they just did to us. I laughed so loud at the fact that they actually did stop in their tracks at this elderly man who's asleep, who has no way of harming them. But because of what just happened to them, now they're afraid of old people, I- like elderly people. That gave me such a huge laugh. <laughs> it's will- almost as, la- as loud of a laughter I got from the Ruth Gordon scene. But I-, I appreciate having that counterbalance of like, they've encountered two versions of old people. One that will help you and one that will, will fuck you up. I, I agree with that and I will give it to you, but I'm just talking about it in terms of the payoff of the scene. Of course. Where of it's course. like, oh, we've gone from shotgun exploding motorcycles to, oh, uh, hose is on, your shoes are wet. So this is a slow burn. Yeah. Because we both seem to have the same opinion of both not liking it, scratching our heads wondering when things are going to happen, whilst also recognizing the slow unfolding narrative, the themes, and it has a vibe. The mm. movie, you know, I make fun of the music, the song, but the the opening credits and Clint Eastwood driving around, it gives you a clear vibe and emotion mm. that you're in with this, which is there's an underwhelming like there's a, there's a there's sadness that just is underneath all of this but it's also just so chill the movie's just very much uh, what Quentin Tarantino would call a hangout movie. I loved his relationships, the uh, main character. I loved his relationship with Clyde. I loved his relationship with his brother or with Echo. Echo. And I loved his relationship with the country singer. They're all different, but they all came from this one place of Clint Eastwood's character just being a, a really down-to-earth guy. And you referenced the Big Lebowski. Yeah, I can definitely see, that was sincere, yeah. I could definitely see what you, you're, you're talking about there, but even in comparison to the Big Lebowski, he's a nicer guy than the dude. <laughs> the dude is a bit of an asshole sometimes, but he, he, you know, he's, he's the dude. He's cool. But even though Clint Eastwood will punch you in the face with his big fist on his big muscly arm, it only happens if you cross him. Yeah, he doesn't pick fights. In fact, he gets his brother to, pro- like, pro- I was going to say professionally, but to properly organize fights. The scene where the bikers come to the restaurant and they pay for the drink to give it to the girl. <laughs> that was great. That was awesome. And they come over and Cleese was like, great, I get a beer. Thanks, fellas. <laughs> it's so nice. These guys paid for my beer. That was so nice of them. Let's thank them properly outside. 
Uh, but when they showed off their tattoos, and he's like, "What is this? An, an arm? arm. <laughs> no, but what is this? Your finger pointing to an arm? No, no. What is this? Oh, a spider. <laughs> like, yeah, it's a tattoo. A tattoo. And just and then, and then the other guy come over. It's like, what is this? And his brother chimes in. It's like another arm. Just, just, <laughs> just these two. I, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the relationships in in it. And as I got past my animosity for the film because of its reputation that preceded it and its aimlessness that was, you know, just taking it over for the first half. I I let all of that go. There comes a point where you just, like the people in the world, you Mm. get past that there's an ape in the movie. Like, you go, okay, there's an ape in the movie and it's his friend. They've given us the backstory about the ape. I'm, I'm accepting the ape as well as I'm accepting how this is telling its story. I think when people review movies or talk about movies, we are so ingrained with how Hollywood specifically structures their stories and how you have to have the three extra shows, the high points, low points, inciting incident, and the conventions of them, that when you see one that doesn't really want to tell it in that exact fashion... There's an easiness to say it, it's a failure, it doesn't work, it's it's wrong. And I looked at that move this 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 every which way but loose in that vein to begin with, but there came a point where I realized why why do movies need to be told that way? Why can't movies be like every which way but loose? I sincerely mean it. They would never make a movie like this today. And it would not be taken as successfully as this. The the scene where um Clint Eastwood's <clears throat> when Clint Eastwood is running and the the girl he's looking for just drives by, gets in the car and they drive off and have a chat. I feel like in a modern movie, if they did that, that would be like a huge narrative subversion kind of thing where it's like, oh, the the big goal is just casually right here. But this film kind of plays it off to be like another point of drama of like, oh, we found her, but now she's gone again. And and what do we do now? Yeah, it, it was it was interesting. I, I almost thought ballsy, but no, the film clearly knew kind of what it was going for in that sense. What was some of your laugh out or like laugh moments, the f- moments that were funny outside of the big Ruth Gordon scene? Um, I did like that one of the first shots we got of uh, Clyde the orangutan in the light was you know raising the hands and we got that a few times so on that very carnal base level of like haha monkey I I did like that pose that kept coming back Um, Clint Eastwood used it himself yeah he did yeah Um, a lot of the shots where just he's physically interacting with the monkey like holding it up it was you know it's funny because you know I've built up such an image of Clint Eastwood in my head of even though I haven't seen too much from him, and I've admitted this to John even, uh, just, you know, here's the film with him and an orangutan, and they're getting along really well, and it's so normal that it is just kind of absurdly funny. Um, so many of the scenes with the... What spider was it again? Black Widows? Yeah, the Widows. Yeah, yeah, Black yeah. Widows. They were very funny. The Ruth Gordon one... Um, a lot of their interactions early on with Clint Eastwood, just how he undermined them. Like the arms scene was so great. You just talked about it. Um, just the casual nature that they blew everything off. Uh, again, as I already talked about it as well, but like just that absurd 
sequence that led up to the zoo scene where they hung out, had a moment that we were not mm-hmm. internally privy to, and then trying to explain to his brother and his new girlfriend, like, this is what we have to do. Just so bizarre. Um, and yeah, there were just so many things that you were saying, like just so casually thrown off that I couldn't help but laugh. Like, okay, wow. This is a real yes and type of adventure where Mm. something will happen and they'll say, yes, and this, yes, and this, my outside the Ruth Gordon scene with the shotgun, which is one of the greatest scenes ever put to film ever. Uh, the second best scene to me was Clint Eastwood is fishing. He is fishing. And <laughs> you're laughing already. I was going to bring it up earlier, but we were talking and now I've forgotten. And the cop that. that has been hunting him for a majority of the film, the one who has legitimate anger towards him, his yeah. anger is less comedic anger than the yeah. Nazis. So earlier when I said it was Blues Brothers, like people following them, it's the bikers and these two cops. And he finally gets to Clint Eastwood. He has him. He has a gun against him. He has him. him dead to rights. Dead to rights. He could just kill him right then and there. Yeah. But he sees that Clint Eastwood is catching a really big fish. And he's, like, giving him a device, and then he grabs the rod for him, and then he catches He asks him. for the rod, like, please yeah. pass me the rod. And, and they work together to catch this fish, and they're bonding. I That's a on- real yes and scene. That's a type of comedic beat in a movie that I, I get a tear in my eye when I see it because... I, they feel so rare to me. Just this level of absurdity. And, and I really want to emphasize again, Every Which Way But Loose is an absurdist comedy in a lot of ways, but it plays it so low energy mm. in comparison to say something like Bubble Boy, where that has absurdist energy and it's so cranked up to 11, it's obvious. But this, it's so like unassuming of how absurdist it will be. So when you get this, they they get the big fish and they look at it. Oh, look how big it is. Oh, wow, it's well, a be, real before, big one. Before that, I was thinking to myself like, oh, so next he's going to like, you know, when he takes the right, he's going to give him the gun to like, you yes. know, be like a Looney Tunes exchange. But no, he couldn't do that because Clint Eastwood needs to slap him with the big fish. In the face, he immediately <laughs> just puts the fish like over his fist and just punches the guy in the face with the fish and knocks him in the water and then just proceeds to beat the fuck out of him and almost drown him and let the fish go. And then basically no words and just moves on. And, and then he climbs up a tree to ambush the other cop. And it was one of the greatest sequences in the film yeah. and I, I laughed a real Went good from bunch. Looney Tunes to Rambo, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was that was magnificent. And you you said something a moment ago that made me think of an aspect of Clint Eastwood's acting that I don't think gets commented about enough. So Clint Eastwood as a performer, we always think of him as stoic, silent, man with no name, squinting squinting his eyes and gritting his mouth, pursed lips. Like Creep. Creep. And the raspy voice. Get off my lawn. But what this really highlighted to me as as something uh, in his innate ability as an actor is he is really good at, at on-screen chemistry with other performers. In this case, you genuinely believe that he is best friends with an ape. That Like... I never doubted that Clint Eastwood was best friends with an ape. Even before he gave, like, the backstory to the girl about, like, wanting to save him from captivity, it was like, oh, that's just even more. (laughs) There's that moment where he's driving and and Clyde is, like, wrapping his hands around his neck and face, and it's very... It just feels like Clint Eastwood has worked with this ape for, like, ages and knows, like, how not to be fearful. Because 
what you've got to imagine this is a film where there's there's a big animal that they're working with that you know could be violent or could be intimidating to a performer like not every like not every tough man actor is actually tough enough to say work with an animal like a snake or an ape or or a tiger or whatever it is an exotic animal and so Clint Eastwood makes you believe it but with all of the human actors in it I, I believe that this guy was his brother I believe that he genuinely was in love with this woman which works because he was in a relationship with the country singer in real mm. life but him and uh, Beverly D'Angelo's character Echo Echo she felt like he like she and like was just a good friend of Clint Eastwood like and it made me think back about his other films that I have seen over the years and how he does have that ability the good the bad and the ugly have you ever seen it by the way the good the bad uh, and the ugly I actually don't know if I've seen any of his well, westerns that's a real shame uh, but cuz it's great but he his his dynamic with with the ugly in that movie is is the, is what is the heart of it. Many people think of the good, the bad, the ugly as like epic Western, the music, the shootouts. But when you actually sit down and watch this what nearly three hour long epic, what's really the the heart and soul is the relationship between Clint, Clint Eastwood, the man who says barely a thing, and the and his relationship with Eli Wallach, who's a man who will not shut up. <laughs> and it's 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 real gold. And Thinking about so many of his other films, like even the Dirty Harry movies. I was going to say, his partner in that film, like, he grew close to him after, like, being really against him. And then later on, he has a scene with that partner's wife where he's, like, kind of gentle. Yeah, and so this really highlighted that to me because he has to be buddy-buddy with so many. Even people he's fighting against in the boxings and... The street fights he's doing, he just has a real playfulness. Yeah, two things. Yeah, you mentioned the scene with Echo Echo where they first meet and there's just no dialogue exchange for a while. It's just looks and then just moving on before anything's ever said. And yeah, I I poured into it. It was this kind of like absurd comedy thing of like, oh, there's a girl here now? Okay. Okay. Um, But yeah, they built up from there. They introduced her to Clyde a bit too late, but still. (laughs) And then Clyde became a normal thing for her. And it was just this one big quartet. Like, wow, if I walked into this film halfway, I would have thought that these guys would have known each other for a million years. (laughs) And she was the Chekhov's gun. She set up having a gun. Yeah, that's true. When she saw Clyde, she was going to shoot him. And then later, she actually did shoot her gun to prove, like, she's a no-nonsense tough lady. You don't mess with her. And she even said that. I I said I could look after myself. (laughs) And I loved her character. I I like Beverly D'Angelo. She's a fun actress. She was in the National Lampoon vacation movie. She's the wife of Chevy Chase in those. She's really funny in those. I can't recollect if you've ever seen one of the vacation movies. I haven't, no. She's so good. She's so (laughs) good in them. She's so she calls him Sparky in those <laughs> movies all the time, and uh, yeah, she's been in a, a million things. But she was great here. I, I really liked her character. Yeah. And and I, why we keep saying Echo Echo twice is there's an ongoing joke that when any when introduces her, they say her name twice because her name is Echo. So they're echoing her name. Yeah. Um. And also, uh, I I guess you'd call this the climax or the payoff of the main plot of when he confronts the country singer and she tells him like i've been trying to get rid of you did you not take a hint his distraught reaction to that felt you know perfectly honest to what this character was of like 
no, I'm not that smart. I, I didn't take the hints. You, you didn't tell me you didn't want to be with me. And just like the distraughtness, like he didn't break down into rage and like beat mm. up on her partner or anything. It was just like- He took the hits from her. Yeah, he took the hits from her. And and that was it. That was the downer ending of the main plot. And mm. it, it felt very honest. <laughs> He has this expression on his face of not only what you said of, yeah, I'm not that smart, I didn't take the hints, but everything she was laying out of the type of man she doesn't want and the type of man he is coming across as, he has this dawning realization of, I am that, I've been that, I've been that the whole time. What does that mean about me? And this hammers home even more when he does fight the legendary fighter of the land, the one who's been referenced throughout this movie. He fights against him, and he's just this fucking old middle-aged guy with a big gut, and he could easily defeat him. He could easily just knock him down. But everyone's chanting, like, you're going to be the next one. This is your... This is what you're going to be now. And it's thanks to that conversation with the country singer and the journey we've been watching along the way that he's he's kind of grown up a lot. He's missed, He doesn't want to be that. It's kind of pathetic. And what he actually is enjoying is what he's been experiencing along the journey of like hanging out with his brother and actually being friends with him and chilling with Clyde and getting to know people rather than just being Mr. I have an ape and I punch people for money. <laughs> and tough guy, Clint Eastwood. We're getting low on funds. Can you pick a fight with someone? Sure. <laughs> and that was interesting about this is the tonal switch, the tonal shifts. When it wants to be serious, it can be really upsetting. When we get that first person shot of her punching and scratching him, it's like really unnerving. It feels like you're watching. Uh, an Argento movie in a way of just that uh, abstract fish-eyed lens where up close and personal of this woman just screaming, screaming these obscenities at him and you're feeling attacked at it because you bought into the narrative. You bought into Clint Eastwood, his character's narrative of the girl needs me. I must go cross-country because... Obviously, she wouldn't have left me behind without saying something. I'm owed that, and she deserves me. And you, the viewer, are thinking, yeah, of course, go after the girl. But every time we cut over to her, she seems perfectly fine. Mm. Yeah, as far as he knew, like, he was in the ride. This wasn't, like, bus stop. Did you have any... So, like, did you did you expect that to be the outcome to the story? Did you did you see that sneaking up as the film went along? Because I'll be honest, it took me a bit by surprise. But once it happened, I, I I nodded along, going, "Yeah, of course." There were a couple of points when it did cut back to her, and she was, you know, being all happy and you know normal about everything. That it was obvious that, like, oh, she's not in distress. Um, but she did go along with Clint Eastwood multiple times, so I did think that there was some sort of, like, conflict within her about, like, do I want to be with this guy, do I not? They had sex. They had sex, that's true. Um, but yeah, the outright, you know, I hate you, I've been trying to get rid of you the entire time, I, I wasn't expecting that intensity of it. I thought it would just be, uh, get, did you not take the hint? Go away, and that would be the end of it. And everyone gets an arc. Everyone wraps up. Even his mother gets her license and she meets someone that respects her who's also someone old. And 
asks her to do a, you know, like, is my hair good? Yeah, it's yeah that guy was really charming. Yeah, and she gets an ending. The brother gets an ending. Echo, like, all of them get their little thing that mm. they wrap on, uh, wrap up on. And even though there's a sad ending for for our main guy. It's also a happy one as well. He's found a bit more of an understanding of him himself because he's been living life on cruise control for a while. So that's why there's humor to be had about people who were coming to kill him. It doesn't matter to him because I'm in control. Punch, punch, move on. There was a weird fondness that was felt, maybe not from Clint Eastwood, but at least from me when at the end they were driving you know, back home and they passed by the cops and the bikers and there was no, like, you know, taunting or malice going on. It was just like a weird kind of, this is the journey that we've been on. (laughs) We're all going back home. Yeah. We're all going back home. Real, yeah. See you guys in the sequel. Now I have some interesting piece of trivia here. There's an actor who appeared in Twin Peaks mm-hmm. that I was hoping Bartek would recognize because I clocked him immediately. There's a character here, and I'm just going to give Bartek a clue as to who he is in Twin Peaks to see if he can figure it out. <laughs> we talked beforehand and I didn't pick out. Twin Peaks Twin is Peaks known after. for giving a thumbs up. When you were talking about Ruth Gordon's payoff and, like, she met a nice man, I had this face of, like, (gasps) was it him? No. No? No. So, with my my clue, who in Twin Peaks do you think is in this? So, so, uh, that show's known for giving iconic thumbs up. This character is known for giving a very, very good thumbs up in Twin Peaks. It's actually one that goes on for quite a while. His thumbs up in what, Twin Peaks. Wasn't it like the guy in the lodge, like when Coop is shot? Yes. Like the old guy? The old man who is like a, a waiter and he's delivering him warm milk. Cooper has been shot. This is like the season one cliffhanger yeah. cut to season two. It's like and the he's beginning still, of season two, right? Yeah, and he's bleeding yeah. to death and he gives him a, a thumbs up and it's like a really long. Yeah. He is the trailer park owner in this movie. In this film, he's oh. the old man who's a trailer park owner. He looks the exact same, except for, obviously, this is a decade and a bit earlier. He still has the mustache, except for it has a bit of color in it. And he looks a little less haggard, but it's the same guy. Oh. I, I, I clocked him immediately. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's the same guy. See, when you reminded me about Ruth Gordon's ending, I thought of that character, nah. but I picked out the wrong guy. Wrong old man. Wrong old man. And he died in the 90s. 92 years old he was when he died in early 90s. So he did Twin Peaks was his last thing, and he died within a year of doing that. So 92. So he'd have been 90, 91, 90 or 91 when he did Twin Peaks. Yeah. Cut to when this movie was, what, he would have been in his late 70s? He would have been 12 or 13 years younger. Yeah, so he would have been in his late 70s. But he was in a bunch of John Wayne movies. He was one of his stable of actors, just one of those... Maybe. People he probably punched or worked, like, punched in those movies, or a friend of his, or like, hey, it's a blacksmith. He, his, he did a lot of westerns. Sounds like his age might have been the last two digits of the year. So, 
that was my piece of fact because I looked at him and I said, oh, I know who that is, but I had to double check <laughs> and I, I was correct. And I thought, oh, Bartek will be happy because you loved that old man in Twin Peaks. Uh, does anyone does anyone hate that old man? Does anyone stay up at night fuming about that old man? <laughs> I, I, I can imagine someone who does not have patience. <laughs> How did seriously, you not call the ambulance? Seriously, you're, you're forgetting no, that's fair enough, fair that enough. we watched it on DVD. Could you imagine being in real time and you had to wait to find out what happened <laughs> Cooper to then it be it wastes your time for 20 minutes of him slowly dying on the floor for an old man to keep giving him a thumbs up and some warm milk. <laughs> Fair enough. If you haven't watched Twin Peaks that doesn't make sense to you. If you have it still makes little sense but it's funny. No, it's, it makes about as much sense as and we're making it sound like. <laughs> they they hint at that he is actually the giant as well. Remember that? There's like later episodes where it's like he, him and the giant wear the same outfit and they're both uh, tall, yeah, bold like men and you see they they like overlap their faces onto one another and then he disappears and it's just the giant and it's like, oh, was that the giant all along? There you go. Mm. Who That actor is still active and working, Carl, Carl Stroiken. And uh, but that was my thing. Other than I can't believe this has a sequel. This has a sequel. This yeah. movie has a sequel that's also similarly rated and beloved as well. People really like that movie as well. I, I read some comments about it, some reviews. Like I said, Roger Ebert talked about that one about how he had a begrudging affection for it. Mm. Yeah, I I was reading up about the film, and oftentimes it would refer to the film just by you know its initials, like. E W W B L, like mm. every which way but loose. And then occasionally they would mention up the other ones, abbreviation. I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? It's like, it began with A, I can't remember the title, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and I was confused and I saw there was a sequel. I'm like, oh, geez, wow, okay. And I hear that it's it retreads this film a little bit and ends happier. Yeah, but. That's it. And, and apparently it- there's like a famous line that gets repeated throughout the film. Oh, and it's a different ape. It's still an orangutan, yeah, yeah. but it's a different one because he had grown up a lot more, so it was too big to carry and deal with. Mm. But that ape was in a few other projects, you know, movie ape. The second ape, the one the one in the second movie, he, when he retired from the industry, was put into that zoo that a lot of Hollywood animals go to, yeah. and he was in the same enclosure as... Bubbles, right? Bubbles, the Michael Jackson chimp. Yeah. <laughs> Is Bubbles... Dead now. Bubbles has to be dead now, right? I think so. We can ask. Bubbles, are you dead? (laughs) Yes. No, actually, I'm doing quite well. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now, anything else you have to say about every which way but loose? I swear that I'd seen the, uh, the leader of the bikers before, but no, I hadn't. He, I think in my head, he resembled a fusion of... Chris Farley's character in Billy Madison, the bus mm. driver, and and this character isn't even American, but the Bishop of Bath and Wells from Blackadder 2. He was a villain. Let's never forget he was the villain in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There you go, yes. Yeah. So like a fusion of those two characters. I thought, oh, there, there he is, but no, it wasn't. Well, I do recommend Every Which Way But Loose, but you have to be accepting of the movie's sensibilities. That's how I would define my recommendation. That's it, exactly. You have to accept its sensibilities in storytelling. But once you do, it's a pretty good film. It's a pretty good time. Uh, I was going to say it's too long, but I think it being the length it is uh, helps 
it's meandering nature in a way because if it was 90 minutes you would argue it's a tighter structure but in a way i kind of like that it's baggy but that's just my personal preference. Uh, would you recommend Every Which Way But Loose? Yeah, I, I'm very similar feelings. I would recommend it. it. It's one that, yeah, you have to buy into. I would say start watching it. And if you're not into it within like the first, I don't know, 20 minutes, it, it's okay to stop. I mean, it, it it kind of shows what it is pretty early on. I would say that this is a movie your mum would enjoy. If your mum said to me, hey, Ryan, I watched this movie that was about this beautiful budding relationship between a man and an ape, and I would nod going, but but it was a formed relationship, but but they're they're bonding over the course of this. I don't know. I think your mum would enjoy it enough. It's, It's got like that vibe of like, it's nice and a little silly. And every time you say movies from the West that she likes, they're often that or the Terminator for some reason. <laughs> it's always weird that that's there. Yeah, I don't know about this one. I don't know. Okay, Biotech's mum, I know you listen to every single episode. Come back next week and give us your report. Well, she'd listen to this one if we like gave the wrong titles like a Bollywood film that she's seen. <laughs> put put every which way but loose, but put it like... Through the Google Translate I just, for I'll, Hindi. I'll just say it's Don. Oh, we did an episode on Don, Mum. <laughs> and then your mum says that movie didn't have Clint Eastwood and a name. <laughs> it had Shadow Khan and sunglasses. There we are. Now it is your turn to recommend a film for us to watch and discuss for the podcast. So what is it that you are pi- pitching our way? Pitching and picking our way. Um, so we're up to my non-American pick in the cycle, um, and I am picking 13 Assassins from Japan. So it's called 13 Assassins, it's a Japanese film. It's not called 13 Assassins from Japan. <laughs> I was like, okay. The 2010 film from Japan, 13 Assassins. Who's in it? I don't know who's in it, but it's directed by Takashi Miike. Oh, the Takashi Miike? Yes, this is one of his famous films. Now, would you be able to describe just for the listeners who that is? Just just quick soundbite of Takashi Miike. So Takashi Miike, uh, I've only seen like two or three films from him, um, but that doesn't really mean much because he is a prolific director who has been working since, I want to say, I'm not even going to guess because I'm going to get it wrong, um, but he's definitely been around since at least the early 90s. Uh, he releases a lot of films and he works with like he works in pretty much every single genre. He does original things, remakes. He does children's things. Horror. Horror. And he, he's he got a very big catalogue. He's most well known for doing very stylistically violent films, like Ichi the Killer. Audition. Audition, uh, things like that. So he's it's one of those things where it's like, Oh, if you've heard about this Japanese film, there's a chance Takashi Miike could have done it because he's just done so much. Um, yeah, like the the two films I've seen from him aren't even the violent ones. It's like the Ace Attorney live action adaptation, and there's this like 2015 film called like The Lion Howling in the Wind, which is this like drama about a Japanese doctor working in the African wilderness and. When I watch it, I'm like, this is Takashi Miike. I heard he was like a, you know, super intense filmmaker. So, yeah, it kind of threw me off. And I think I was talking to him about you. No, I was talking to you about him 
a few weeks ago and you were talking about how not too long ago people online were like, oh, what's this film he's making? It's like this weird spy kidsy kind of film. It was like a Power Rangers ripoff. Yeah. So, so he he does a lot. He cannot be stopped with how much he puts out. So yeah. And from what I understand, 13 Assassins is one of his most famous films. Yeah, so according to IMDb, he has directed 113 things. That includes television, that yep. includes ads, that includes movies. But that's pretty impressive nonetheless. And yes, he, he, he does not care what type of thing it is. He will direct it. He will do it. So... It's like, what I, a champ. it's like I read a manga a few years ago that I really liked. I'm like, oh, there's a live action adaptation. And I looked at the trailer and I'm like, oh, it doesn't look too great. And then it's like, oh, directed by Takashi Miike. Wow. Yeah, you, you, you stated it, didn't you, that he did the Ace Attorney movie. Yes. That's it. So everyone make really sure <laughs> to check out 13 Assassins in the meantime. Obviously, we'll be watching the subs. I don't know if there's even dubs for it. I don't know too much, but uh, right, this but is yes, not sounds... this is not one I have seen of his. I've only seen a, a handful, so uh, I'm excited to give it a watch. Mm. I've seen Audition, which I I considered to be the one that everyone knows him for because yeah. that's a pretty. I want to check that inf- one out at some point. <laughs> 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 I've heard of its reputation. I don't know the specifics, but uh, no, it's, it's not Grave of the Fireflies. Du- I know double, it's intense. <laughs> double feature it with Bad Boy Bobby and just kill yourself. <laughs> so uh, and the loved ones and just kill yourself. Oh, by the way. Um, People in Australia who are listening to this the day it comes out, tomorrow this film, 13 Assassins, is getting off of Stan. So if you want to watch it and you're listening to this when this comes out, that's your chance. That's We gave you all the clues. <laughs> yes. That's my gift to you, even though this episode comes out on my 30th birthday. You're welcome, guys. Happy birthday to Bartek then. But Woo! until next time, I'm doing the Clyde people, pose. You can find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter under Spit and Polish Presents. You can email us directly over at spitandpolished at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts, feelings, opinions, and if you have any recommendations for films for us to cover on the podcast. Yes, please. Let us know and we'll add it to the list. Uh, John, our good friend from Dirty Harry Minute, recommended every way, every which way but loose. So I hope, John, you're happy now that we've done this and Tommy Tricker and the Stamp Traveler. Boy, he really chose two movies with annoying titles, didn't he? <laughs> They're both movies that's like, oh, that rolls off the tongue real easy, like Lickitongue. But until next time, listening people, remember to be kind to one another or we'll both take our shirts off and our shoes, and our socks, and punch you in the face with our surprisingly well-defined muscly arms. That was the thing I couldn't get past was Clint Eastwood's arms were jacked. I remember there was this one shot where it was like from the perspective of, you know, just in front of the passenger seat in the car, and he was like resting his arm on like the windowsill, and you could see just the, uh, what's the upper arm called? The bicep? bicep the yeah. bicep was just like bulging. I'm like, did he get stung by a bee or something? That's huge. <laughs>